Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. I recently read about the passing of an American ophthalmologist named Alan Scott, who was referred to as the father of Botox. This intrigued me, so I dug a little deeper and found some very interesting history behind this toxic molecule. I thought it might be fun to do a little mini-episode or standalone suture tale, if you will. So let's learn some eyebrow-raising facts in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Alright, to begin, let's define exactly what we're talking about. The molecule, botulinum, is produced by the rod-shaped gram-positive bacteria known as Clostridium botulinum, and you're going to love where the name comes from, but we'll get to that later, and is found ubiquitously in soil and water. It is regarded as one of the most potent toxins known to humankind. Poisoning by this toxin is called botulism, which is caused by the molecule blocking nerve function, inhibiting the release of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine to be specific, leading to paralysis. This presents as acute weakening of the muscles, leading to difficulty in speaking and swallowing and double vision, followed by progressive symmetrical flaccid paralysis descending from the muscles of the head and throat. In severe cases, this causes death from respiratory failure because the muscles needed to breathe stop working. Mental functioning is not impaired by the toxin, and so the patient remains alert and conscious throughout the disease, which is, frankly, pretty terrifying. Now, there are a few ways to get botulism, which we'll cover real quick. Foodborne is considered the classical form, which is caused by ingesting the toxin itself in contaminated food, where the right growing conditions exist for the bacteria, often due to improper preservation. Foodborne botulism has likely been around since humans began to store food. Some have suggested that dietary taboos in history have been due to the recognition that certain foodstuffs predispose to this illness. For example, in the 10th century CE, the emperor Leo VI of Byzantium announced an edict in which manufacturing blood sausage was forbidden, and a penalty was laid down in case of violation. And we'll get back to blood sausages in a minute. Infant botulism, which typically occurs in babies under six months of age, is caused by the ingestion of Clostridium botulinum spores, either from soil or contaminated foods, most commonly honey. The spores begin to grow in the intestinal tract of the baby and release the toxin. The reason infants are at higher risk for this is because they lack protective bacterial flora and Clostridium-inhibiting bile acids. This is the reason why you aren't supposed to feed honey to a child under a year of age. Now you know. Wound botulism occurs when the bacteria enters a wound and grows, releasing the toxin. This can be seen in abscesses of IV drug users, although it can also occur after traumatic injury or surgery. And finally, the iatrogenic type, remember from the Greek iatros, meaning physician, and gen for producing, therefore something caused by a doctor. Kind of self-explanatory, but it's caused by inappropriate injection of botulism toxin. So let's get back into history to trace the discovery of the bacteria and its deadly yet useful toxin. At the end of the 18th century CE, the number of cases of fatal food poisoning throughout the southwest German region of Württemberg were increasing. This was likely from a decline in hygienic standards for rural food production due to widespread poverty, itself caused by the devastation of the Napoleonic Wars. It was eventually suspected that this paralytic disease was associated with the consumption of a rural dish known as blunzen, or samogen, which is a cooked pork stomach filled with blood sausage. In 1815, a medical officer named Justinus Kerner in the small town of Welsheim reported a lethal food poisoning 
Kerner was just 29 years old at this point and also a romantic poet. He collected more cases and published them in 1820, giving a complete clinical description of what we now would recognize as botulism. He moved to Weinsberg as a medical officer and intensified his research on toxins. Kerner wanted to extract and isolate the unknown substance which he called sausage poison, or fatty acid from sausages, which he tested first on animals and then himself. In a second paper, he wrote, quote, The nerve conduction is brought by the toxin into a condition in which its influence on the chemical process of life is interrupted. The capacity of nerve conduction is interrupted by the toxin in the same way as an electrical conductor by rust, end quote. Kerner even suggested the use of the toxin for therapeutic purposes, specifically hypersalivation, excessive salivating, hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating, and St. Vitus dance. A briefly St. Vitus dance, also called Sydenham chorea, chorea comes from the Greek word for dancing, so think choreography, which is a neuropsychiatric manifestation of rheumatic fever leading to rapid, uncoordinated jerking movements affecting the face, hands, and feet. St. Vitus was a Christian saint who was persecuted by the Romans and died a martyr in 303 CE. He is the patron saint of dancers, no surprise, and the name St. Vitus Dance is an homage to the manic dancing in front of his statue during feasts in his honor in Germanic and Latvian cultures. But let's get back to Kerner. He received the nickname Wurstkerner, or Sausage Kerner, and the sausage poisoning was known as Kerner's disease. And here comes your fun fact of the day. The sausage poisoning was also called botulism, for the Latin word botulus, which means sausage. Some falsely believe that the name came from the shape of the bacteria, but in truth, the moniker appeared before the causative organism was discovered, which we're about to get into. On December 14, 1895, a large outbreak of botulism occurred after a funeral in the small Belgian village of Alzels. The band that had played at the funeral gathered afterwards in the inn Le Rustique. 34 people ate pickled and smoked ham and began to fall ill. The microbiologist Emile Pierre-Marie van Ermengem of the University of Ghent ordered examination of the ham and autopsies on those that had succumbed to the disease. He isolated an anaerobic microorganism that he called Bacillus botulinus, later named Clostridium botulinum, from both the ham eaten at the meal and in the tissues of the victims. And so the causative organism of botulism was discovered. Now let's jump ahead to the 20th century. As I'm sure many of you know, World War I saw the first large-scale use of chemical weapons, including mustard gas, chlorine gas, and phosgene. It also saw some biological warfare with the Germans sending the Allies horses intentionally infected with anthrax and glanders, a bacterial infection primarily in horses, mules, and donkeys. In 1925, the Geneva Protocol was created, which prohibited the use of chemical and biological weapons in armed conflicts, but there were no restraints on research and production. By the Second World War, a number of countries had biological weapons development programs. Allied intelligence services reported a major German threat related to the potential use of botulinum toxin as a biological weapon, particularly during the preparation of Operation Overlord, which was the Allied invasion to liberate Europe which began with D-Day. However, it turned out that Hitler had an unequivocal ban on offensive biological weapon preparations, but ordered intensive study of defensive measures against biological warfare. It was actually the French who had done the most research on this in the years leading up to the war, 
which was shared with Britain, who had set up a bacteriological warfare subcommittee, which integrated into the biological warfare committee at the outbreak of World War II. Botulinum toxin, codenamed Agent X, was one of the agents, alongside anthrax, that were studied. And just to give you a frame of reference, a single gram of crystalline botulinum toxin, evenly dispersed and inhaled, can kill more than one million people. The results of British research were unconvincing. At this point, a simple method for mass production had not yet been found. Toxin batches varied considerably in toxicity. Animal experiments were disappointing, and botulinum via inhalation was unpredictable in severity. One report stated, quote, Coating the inside walls of bombs and shells with Agent X, either dried on with adhesive or in liquid contact, was ineffective. This was shown to be due to complete decomposition of the toxin by the heat developed in the shearing of the metal, end quote. The Americans only got involved in bacteriological weapons research in 1942 and created the War Reserve Service, led by chemist George W. Merck, who was also the president of the pharmaceutical firm Merck & Company. A biochemist working there named Edward J. Shantz was able to culture Clostridium botulinum, isolate the toxin, and develop a bulk purification method by 1944. The toxin was purified into a crystalline form which, with accompanying proteins, stabilized the neurotoxin and prevented thermal and proteolytic degeneration, important steps in the use of botulinum toxin in medicine. Around 1968, Shantz was contacted by the ophthalmologist mentioned at the top of this episode, Dr. Alan Scott, who was at that time working at the Smith Kettlewell Eye Research Foundation in San Francisco. Scott was looking for alternatives for strabismus surgery. Strabismus is where the eyes do not properly align with each other. The name comes from a Greek word meaning to squint. He had tried injecting a number of substances into the ocular muscles of monkeys, including anesthetics, alcohol, enzymes, enzyme blockers, and even snake neurotoxins. Scott then thought the botulinum toxin was a potential injectable agent for treating eye muscle hyperactivity. When he did try the botulinum toxin, he observed a remarkable effect. Quote, An injection of a few picograms would induce paralysis confined to the target muscles, long in duration, and with no side effects whatsoever. End quote. Scott's animal studies were published in 1973, and the first human experiments in healthy volunteers and strabismus patients occurred in 1977. The success of the toxin in treating strabismus, and later blepharospasm, which is twitching of the eyelid, led to the FDA approval of botulinum as an orphan drug in 1989 under the name Oculinum. The allergen company, which acquired the rights to distribute Oculinum, received FDA approval to change the name to one that most people would know today, Botox. However, in other parts of the world, and even with different applications, different names are used. Most people today are familiar with Botox as a cosmetic product, but as we've seen, that was not the original intent. And as we'll get to in a second, it has applications far beyond smoothing out wrinkles. In fact, Dr. Scott, known as the father of Botox, found its cosmetic application amusing. To complete his story, Dr. Scott continued experimenting right up to the end of his life, last working on an electrical stimulation of eye muscles by means of a tiny implanted pacemaker-like device. He died on December 16, 2021, at the age of 87. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a lengthy list of applications of botulinum toxin in medicine, as there are many, by one estimate around 150 different indications. 
but let's highlight just a few with a focus on conditions that are often seen and treated by surgeons. We talked about a couple of ophthalmological uses, including strabismus and blepharospasm, but it can also be used to create protective ptosis, closing of the upper eyelid to facilitate healing of severe corneal infections, entropion, which is inversion of the lower eyelid producing painful corneal irritation, and a number of others. In ENT, it can be used to treat spasmodic dysphonia, or dystonia or involuntary contraction of the laryngeal muscles controlling the vocal cords, and something called crocodile tear syndrome, which is the uncontrolled flow of tears during eating in patients with facial nerve impairment, often from Bell's palsy or traumatic facial palsy. Now, as an aside, shedding crocodile tears means to feign sadness or to show insincere remorse, and it's based on a myth that dates back to antiquity, that crocodiles wept for the victims that they were eating. The ancient Greek historian Plutarch compared it to people who desire or even cause the death of someone and then publicly lament their passing. And there's a funny footnote to all of this. A neurologist in the U.S. was preparing a talk on the subject of crocodile tear syndrome and contacted a University of Florida zoologist to ask if there was any truth to this myth. The scientist then conducted a study and showed that some reptiles related to crocodiles, like alligators and caimans, do in fact cry whilst eating. However, this is likely related to air being forced through the sinuses. But they do create tears to lubricate their eyes and not lament their victims. Now back to the botulinum toxin. In urology, this can be used to treat detrusor sphincter dyssynergia, which is the uncoordinated action of the detrusor and sphincter muscles of the bladder caused by central nervous system dysfunction, as well as idiopathic detrusor overactivity, meaning an overactive bladder having urge syndrome, neurogenic detrusor overactivity, usually from spinal cord lesions, urinary retention, bladder pain syndrome, also called interstitial cystitis, pelvic floor spasms, and even benign prosthetic hyperplasia because the toxin can relax intraprosthetic smooth muscle and reduction of gland secretions. For surgeons specializing in gastrointestinal disorders, botulinum toxin can be used for a number of conditions such as anal fissures, as it reduces anal tone, achalasia, which is aperistalsis and reduced relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter causing progressive dysphagia, retention of food and saliva, regurgitation, thoracic pain and weight loss, and gastroparesis, which is the delayed stomach emptying by injecting the pyloric sphincter. Many of the additional applications focus on dystonias, which are sustained involuntary muscle contractions, and spasticity, which is in a number of conditions often related to neurological damage, such as strokes, trauma, and infantile cerebral palsy. I did come across one potential future use of the toxin called CDEPT, which stands for Clostridia Directed Enzyme Pro-Drug Therapy. This is pretty cool, so let's just take a second to look at this. Basically, this method takes advantage of the fact that Clostridium botulinum bacteria are what are called obligate anaerobes, meaning that they can only grow in environments with no, or at least very low, oxygen. So the idea is that patients are given spores of the bacteria, which then germinate in the hypoxic or low oxygen necrotic regions common to solid tumors, particularly fast-growing ones. They then release an enzyme, what they've been genetically engineered to carry. This enzyme then converts a non-toxic prodrug, which is a chemically modified drug that's been given systemically, into a toxic drug that kills the tumor cells. 
This means that the drug or chemotherapy is active only in the tumor and doesn't kill normal healthy cells in the body. Pretty ingenious if you ask me. So let's end on a quote I read from one of the papers used to create this episode. It was referencing the Renaissance Swiss physician Paracelsus, who once stated, quote, All substances are poisons. There is none that is not a poison. The right dose differentiates a poison from a remedy, end quote. Botulinum toxin certainly fits that description. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm not sure where the next episode will be or when it'll be, but I'll try to get one out soon. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever, wherever you download the episodes. Leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I really do love hearing from you and hearing your thoughts on the podcast or giving me ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.